Welcome to the Liner Note with your hosts, Ed Lopez Reyes, Jim Long, John Culkin, and Joe W. Uh, alcohol fueled whoop ass machine. Yep. So, JB, uh, and I know Joe and, and John have some questions too, but I wanted to ask you uh, how did you connect with Kingdom Come? What was the, who was, was your a, conduit? Well, it was a cattle call. Like, that happened. Yeah. Those things happen in LA all the time. Just like Ozzy Osbourne. Oh, I need a bass player. Well, 500 bass players show up and sure. audition, you know, and then, uh, you know, his wife went out and goes, okay, there's only three guys looks wise that could actually make it here. So we'll have them come in and play, you know, and, uh, I, right. actually, I auditioned with Sean McNabb and, uh, what was his name? Joey star from, uh, from James, James, not James addiction. Uh, one of those, 90s yeah yeah. he died and and then i thought well ozzy should have hired me because i wasn't a a drug addict at the time (laughs) (laughs) they hired the guy yeah you hire your bass player off of celebrity rehab you know what i don't know what you expect (laughs) so um, but he was he was a real nice looking guy when he was younger and stuff so uh i felt really good that i got even in the top three called back. So Kingdom Come was a similar thing too, that, uh, you know, they, uh, they had hired this lady, Lucy Forbes, who had a thing called Rock Congress, where she was trying to get the best uh, band, best players and the best long haired guys all together in these eighties, you know, hair bands. Yeah. Right. So uh, she says, yeah, that, uh, I got some auditions for her. She got me an audition with Michael Bateo, the guy who plays the double neck guitar. It's cutting out a little and, bit, right? Yeah. And he, you know, which I thought was great. What a great guitar player and what a nice guy he was. Uh, but I, I didn't see any success there, you know. And then when Kingdom Come comes along, it was another one of those, you know, a couple million dollar record deals, you know, signing yeah. bonus, salary right off the bat just to rehearse and stuff. I'm going, you know. I, I got a lot of good friends around here, but I'm going with Kingdom Come. You know, uh, it was like, you know, probably 100 guitar players tried out, 15 drummers and eight bass players. And I got the bass player gig and James got the drummer gig and my best friend Danny Stagg got the guitar gig. So it was like, and we were a four piece band and we were working with Bob Rock and uh, everything was working out great. And then later we got a guy, Rick Steyer. Uh, to play on the second album and uh, go on tour with us. So that's how that, that's so, how that went down. So Rick, okay, so Rick came in later, but he was also on the first album, no? Or Well, his his picture was, <laughs> he never played on the first album. I got it. it. Was, yeah, it was like the album was done yeah. and we were getting ready to go on tour. Lenny also played really good guitar and bass. And uh, he, he played keyboards and, you know, he's an amazing singer. And uh, so it was like, well, do we want Lenny to be a front man, like which was very popular then, or do we want him to be a guitar front man? So we said, let's get a utility guys to play the keyboards and the guitar on the, that were on the album. So we hired Rick Steyer, who was also from Louisville, Kentucky, and was James yeah. Kotak's best friend. You know, right? So we're and Rick was a real, you know, he was a guitar teacher, and he was like a little more yeah. stable on some levels than the rest of us and still is, you know, gotcha. And, you're uh, saying. So he still kind of handles the business of the band and, you know, and stuff like that. And, uh, there, you know, he's got two kids and, you know, just more of a family kind of guy, you know, but, uh, fair enough. Uh, JB, I know I just, Joe I wanted a, to ask about the, go oh, ahead, John. Oh, I just had a, a question. 
Uh, JB, I was wondering, I know you probably put in, I don't know, 20,000 hours of practicing before you make it right. And so what's it like to then finally be at the top? You know, does it happen overnight or do you expect it to happen? Or is it something like, you? yeah, of course, it led up in, in a much slower way. Do you wake up the next day and all of a sudden you guys are <laughs> filling, you know, arenas and things like that? How did, how did that work out for you? And what it, did it feel like? It's pretty overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, it was like, you know, you go from a, a country nature child, right, from Ohio that, you know, my first band was called the the Village Outcast. It was a four-piece rock band. You know, I played drums for it. And then that that was at like nine years old. And, uh, you know, we played the Catholic Teen Center and the Methodist Teen Center. We So we played on church, at churches on the weekend and stuff. But, uh, and then we started smoking pot at about 15 and a half, 16 years old, you know, getting interested in chicks <laughs> and stuff like that. And we changed the name of the band to Isotope Phoenix Cloud Machine, because that seemed to be more, you know, culturally appropriate at the time, you know, <laughs> and, and then we broke up, you know, I got sick of playing drums, and uh, I was playing more piano and bass at that point, and I was starting to play jazz with, uh, like, a, the Jazz Lab Band, and uh, and I had a band called Image Jazz, and we had, like, uh, Chrissy Hines' brother was on saxophone, she's from Kent, Ohio, too which is about seven oh, wow. miles from where my farm was. And uh, so we had uh, Terry Hine on on alto sax and Michael Watt on flugelhorn and trumpet. And uh, and they were like in their 40s, and we thought, oh, my God, these guys are old. But they, they taught it, taught me so much <laughs> about playing jazz and, and, you know, finding the sweetest yeah. notes to play and stuff like that. They were mature people, you know. So I played jazz for a while. I got kind of be a jazz snob and uh, played in some blues bands. And then it was like, it came time to like prove to my dad that you could make money as a musician, right? So I ah. I, I <laughs> took an offer to go uh, with this band to Florida. Uh, it was a it was this band from Pittsburgh. It was like a nine piece uh, dance band, you know. And we had an interracial couple up front this jewish girl singer who was just awesome and her husband george who also <laughs> played trumpet was i mean he sang they were like marilyn mccoo and billy dick you know it was like they were really a good act you know so we we took it down south we're traveling around down south we get to miami and you know we're we're getting like three grand for the band or something and i'm going out and seeing other bands i'm going all the other bands are choreographed and they're getting like twice as much money because they're wearing spangly suits and doing choreography. So I started choreographing the band and getting us to dress more coordinated and so like So the price went up. <laughs> and I did that for a while. It was fun. And, you know, we did uh, Earth, Wind and & Fire and Trevaris and Ohio Players and all this stuff. And I really enjoyed that music. And then, uh, you know, we decided to fire all the horn players and go three piece. And, you know, we just kept getting smaller and smaller and uh, <laughs> split the money. Yeah. So I ended up being in Florida for about four years. Uh, we ended up uh, in calling the band caper and we would play. At, we ended up in like doing a house gig in in Clearwater, Florida for like a year and a half at the same bar, wow. six nights a week. You know, I moved in across the street. Life was pretty easy. And that's when I got that offer from the band on Interscope to go out to, to L.A. They were called Chopper. They had a picture of a chopper with wings on it on their cover. And I'm going, this, we've made it. You know, they sound just like Boston. 
And then, yeah. uh, and then when the album went to come out in 1980, it was like, well, how come they're not getting an airplay? This is a great sounding record. There's hits on it. And everybody said, oh, it sounds too much like Boston. So that was like, <laughs> that was my first education yeah. that the, the record business is very fickle. You know, it's like, if they like Kingdom Come this week, they're not going to like them next week. They're going to like right. Nirvana next week. You know, they're going to like yep. the Foo Fighters two weeks later. You know what I mean? It's going to, they keep changing it. And I finally figured this out. It's like, okay, you sell them 2 million records, right? And then you say, hey, to your record company, hey, we just sold 2 million records. How come you're only giving us 13% still, right? And it's like, we need to renegotiate our contract because we sold 2 million records, right? right. It's like, okay, we'll give you 30%, but then to save money, they won't do the promo on you anymore. So your second album doesn't do as good as your first album because you asked for more money. If you would have kept it to 13%, they would have shoved all that money that they had to give you now into promoting your second album, right? So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, a win-win, fail-fail kind of thing. It's like, you know, uh, the bands that stick around for a long time, you know, like Bon Jovi and Metallica and stuff, they kind of keep changing with the times, you know, they, they cut their hair or whatever they had to do to look modern, you know, shaved it off. But it was weird because after the eighties, it was kind of like being Elvis when the Beatles came out, you know, now the eighties are all these tattooed guys with shaved heads and, you know, uh, we're all depressed and we have ADHD and but we're all bipolar and we're going to sing about it. Damn it. And it was like such a, you know, change from the from from the eighties. You know, we were all like, you know, basically you had to be good looking, you had to be skinny, and you had to be able to shred on your guitar, you know. And then guitar solos went away in the nineties and it was like everybody started tuning down and playing on five string basses and you know, and and I loved it. I was like, Man, I'm depressed. I'm, you know, <laughs> let's go get some heroin and, you know, some, some opiates and listen to Disturbed, you know. So things change drastically quick in that business, you know. But the truth is the good stuff sticks around, you know. I mean, Journey, Song, uh, you know, uh, Don't Stop Believing. I'm glad they made a gazillion dollars with that song because that's the message you want to give people. As long as you have faith, and can visualize a good feature, don't stop believing, you know, or, you know, Living on a Prayer by John Bon Jovi. Those are the songs I wanted to put out, like faithful, you know, encouraging songs. So, and I still have a bunch of them. And, you know, I'm waiting for the trend to change, <laughs> you know, again, that it'll change to love and compassion and the whole hippie thing will happen again, you know, and I'll and, be right, right there. <laughs> yeah, I think it's here, JB. Yeah, I think so. I think you're on the verge, actually. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you've seen all these old bands come. I've been, I, I was a professional songwriter. I had 100 songs, uh, you know, that were published, maybe 120, and was making yeah. money off those. I had a song on a chorus commercial. I had a song in uh, uh, in the Super Bowl last year. Uh, oh, wow. From, uh, you know, that was on a Warrant record that sold 4 million copies. And so, so I was a professional songwriter. I I had learned that from Diane Warren and some of those professional songwriters that I used to produce for. They had rules for songwriting stuff. You know, it's like, oh, you got to be in the chorus within 30 seconds or it's not a real song or, you know, it's got to be some cliche, you know, 
thing that everyone's heard for the lyrics and it's got to be this happy, you know, and they all had their rules. And I'm just like, just screw the rules. So about 15 years ago, I stopped writing professionally and started writing spiritually. You know, I started channeling my lyrics and it became effortless to write my songs all of a sudden. So this is what I'm gearing up to do right now is to release all this faithful, spiritual music that will uplift people. And that's that's where I'm at right now. I'm just Jamie, I'm, that was actually that was actually the next question I was gonna ask you. Okay. Uh, pretty much. See, um, when you sit we are. When you when you sit down to write a song, and I know you're spiritual, yeah. how how often does say the muses take over and use your your soul and your body to express Every the time. universe in that song, you know? Every time. Really? First first you pick up a guitar or a keyboard, or a bass, or some instrument, and then you go, oh my God, I've never played that before, and that sounds really good. So, and it, it sounds good enough that I'll, I, I'll play it for the next three weeks, this little riff I came up on guitar. And I don't know what it is yet, but I let that piece of inspirational music that seemed to be a gift in the first place to allow it to keep inspiring me. Okay, so I got this riff. Let's see. So, if, uh, so I come up that that riff, yep. right, and then it starts, and it starts to take on like a vibe of like, what is this song about? You know, well, maybe it's not about anything. Maybe I'll just start painting a picture about some woman I love. You know. And I won't come right out and say it's a woman I love. I'll actually name her something else. So that that song I just played for you, it's called Quirky Parker, right? And my wife was all saying, well, I'm your quirky wife. You know, your first three were like this, right? But I'm the quirky one. I go, good, I'm going to name you quirky. And we'll be we'll be drilling quirky Parker, right? That's that's <laughs> our like our, our stage names if we ever take off as a do well you know she sings pretty good too, <laughs> and she's an extremely nice looking woman and uh so that song you know i just kept playing that riff playing it playing it playing it and all of a sudden within about two months the song was done you know and it was complete complete and it was like and i was happy with it you know and i was happy with the message it gave and my wife was happy with it and then i you know i went in the studio and recorded it and uh, I've got about 18 songs recorded right now that uh, need to be finished and need to be mixed and possibly a better guitar player come in and, and redo some of my tracks, you know, and uh, probably have my best friend Danny come down or get some superstar friend of mine to come and play guitar. <laughs> a couple leads anyway. Leave some of my leads. So that's where I'm at right now. And I, I, that's that's my big thing in life is it's what I've done in the last 15 years, you know, and, uh, that's my hope. And, you know, the fact that I am 70 years old and, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm six foot two and 140 pounds. And, and I, I feel like I am still the person that could go and sell this music. You know, I could, I could sell it to some new kid right. coming out, you know, that doesn't write his own songs, but he has a great voice. And I like doing that too. You know, I like writing for other people. 
especially like personally, you know, and I've ghosted on some songs where I didn't get the credit, but I got some money up front for writing songs for people. I've ghosted for people who weren't good enough to play bass in the studio for themselves or keyboards yeah. and, and, you know, give them the credit. But hey, you know, uh, you have to pay me to shut up. <laughs> I'll play bass for you and you can say you played bass on this. Just pay me. Yeah. And that happens and that happens a lot from what oh I understand, JB. I mean, yeah. Like I know the the Warren album, uh Cherry Pie, there's a lot of guitar parts were done by this other fellow. I forget his name now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh but I guess it's very common, yeah. Uh yeah. and and I know we wanted to ask you about this uh possible Aerosmith thing that's coming up. Um, but I wanted to ask you a couple more things about Kingdom Come and then hand it off to Joe's. Joe's got a lot of questions about that. But um when Kingdom Come first split up i was wondering did you guys ever put any work at the the original lineup into that third album that lenny released or was that completely done on his own well it uh you know he was working on that stuff uh, when it yeah. when that third came, album came out there was hardly any songs on it i hadn't lenny hadn't run run by me you know gotcha but uh i had no uh legal uh course to that you know i you know when when i quit the band i had to give up all my royalty rights and all that stuff so i didn't even try to say i had helped write some of that third album because i mean barely basically i didn't i was i was mostly the lyric writer in the band and me and danny yeah. and uh and a lot of people got credit for that lenny couldn't speak english that well on the first album you know he's right. in germany so he learned how to speak english he's a super smart guy and uh, so um, he started having more of a, you know, uh, a, a command of the English language and how to put it into songs at that point. And I thought his third album was pretty good, but the record company wasn't into it. You know, like I say, That's you, keep, like. you keep negotiating so you can get more of a piece for yourself. But then the record company says, oh, yeah, we'll give you more of a piece, but we're going to save it on the promotions, you know, so you don't get that the makes promotions. Sense. So, I think he put out about 18 more records without us and none of them sold anything. And I've gone right, and through that, some, and some of it's pretty good, you know? And I was going to ask you about that. That's actually the last question I had before I hand you over to Joe, who wants to ask you about the, the movie project. But when you guys decided to go back out with the new singer, with Keith, um, you guys, did you guys ever consider any of the stuff? I mean, you guys weren't on those albums that Lenny carried on with in Germany because that's where they were released. Yeah, if I remember correctly. You guys never looked at that material right at that point. You're like, you know, this is about the first couple of albums, correct? Right. Well, um, you know, it it was kind of like, you know, when James, like, uh, now he's out of the Scorpions, and uh, he really wants to do this, and he's telling us he can stay sober, and we're we're we we have faith in him. You know, he's a great musician, and uh, so he uh, uh, um. He said, let's just do stuff off the first two albums, right? The, the, one, right. the two that sold the most. I mean, the first album sold almost two million copies. The second album only sold less than a million, you know. But still, they had some push and they, had some, they got some airplay and MTV was still big at the time. Then, you know, when MTV folded and, uh, and that whole scene kind of went down the scene, it was like, well, there's no place for those 80s bands anymore. The highly visual, you know, guitar slingers and, you know, right. all, you know, everybody was doing that guitar flip and, 
you know, it was, it was just, there just wasn't any place for that anymore. People wanted to be right. depressed in the 90s, you know. It had to go along with <laughs> the, the drugs that were coming out and all that stuff. So. The angst. <laughs> you know what? I am out of power here. I'm going to have to plug in. All right. Thank you for tuning in to The Liner Note. Until next time. <laughs>